Welcome to Med Together. This is a podcast by the people, for the people, as it were. My name is Khana. I'm a med student in New York. This podcast deals with a lot of med school topics, starting from the basic sciences and building its way up, and hopefully it'll be a bit of review that can help y'all consolidate and synthesize important information and maybe phrase it in a way that's easy to understand. By the way, if you're pre-med or you're a nursing student or you're just interested in science medically topics and you're not in healthcare at all, you're totally welcome to. We don't discriminate. If you're interested, you're cool. Ready to rock? Let's do this. Hey everyone, welcome if you're new, welcome back if you're a repeat listener. Today's going to be a Pharmacology 101 Blitz. We're just going to go over some fundamentals of dose response, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, and just like a sound bite on addiction intolerance to set you up for more detailed talks about different types of receptors in future episodes. Let's start off by defining some of these terms. Pharmacokinetics is essentially what the body does to metabolize or process the drug. Pharmacokinetics is going to govern, eventually, the concentration of a drug that will be at the receptor and therefore the drug that's available to exert an effect. Pharmacodynamics is how the drug affects the body. So how do drugs affect the body and why do we use them? Generally, we use drugs to mask some kind of underlying condition like pain or inflammation, uh, to get rid of a pathogen like antibiotics or antivirals, or to replace something that's missing or deficient like insulin in a type 1 diabetic. Now drugs for the most part, interact at a receptor to initiate a response. These can be drugs called agonists, which cause a response, or they can be blocking a response to something else called antagonists. There are four classes of signaling receptors, and we're going to go through receptors in much greater detail in the receptor talks, but just, you know, kind of as an overview. We have the G-protein coupled receptors, which can have both quick effects and long-lasting effects. We can have receptor tyrosine kinases or other transmembrane receptors, which also can have quick and long-lasting effects. We can have ligand-gated ion channels, which are quick-acting and have a very short-lived response. And then we have intracellular receptors, which are slow to respond but have long-lasting changes like gene expression. I will point out that drugs can also work by acting on agents in the signaling cascade, not by directly acting on the receptor, and they can disrupt the signaling cascade. Again, we'll get into more details on all of this. Additionally, they can affect the concentration of neurotransmitters or hormones and cause there to be more or less of an effect. Think... SSRIs. These are drugs for depression that cause serotonin to be reuptaken less. So there's more serotonin around. Serotonin has a stronger effect. But the effect of the drug is not actually on the serotonin receptors. It's just stopping serotonin from being reuptaken. In order to contextualize why we care about pharmacokinetics, which again is what's going to govern the concentration of a drug at the receptor, we have to talk about dose response curves. All drugs have a dose response curve, which is a quantitative relationship between the amount of drug at the receptor and the biological response that it has, which is why pharmacokinetics, which determines the drug concentration at the receptor, is important. Any measurable change caused by the binding of the drug to the receptor counts as an effect. It can be a molecular effect, like the release of a second messenger, or it can be an increase in cell growth, an increase in cell death, shrinkage of a tumor, lots of options. We're going to start off talking about graded dose response curves. Graded dose response curves plot the percent of maximum effect on the y-axis against the dose of the drug on the x-axis, and they'll appear logarithmic. So the response is going to increase sharply at first and then eventually taper off. The point at which you've saturated the receptors and adding more drug does not continue to increase the effect is called the Emax, as in maximal effect. The EC50 is the concentration that produces half the maximal effect, um, and that's generally we talk about EC50. This may be reminding you of Michaelis Menten and giving you flashbacks. I'm so sorry, but this is how we do these things in science. Um, I don't know what to tell you. Anyway, even though, like I said, they 
plot as logarithmic, we tend to actually look at them as sigmoidal curves because it compresses the data and makes it easier to visualize and you can really see the EC50 much better. Now the effect or the response does depend on the amount of drug, but it also depends on the drug itself. How selective the drug is for its target receptor, how well it binds to the target, also called affinity. Affinity is measured with a KD, a dissociation constant, which is equal to the product of the concentration of free drug and the concentration of free receptor divided by the concentration of the complex. A smaller KD means it binds better or has a higher affinity, whereas a large KD means that it doesn't bind very effectively, doesn't have a lot of affinity for that receptor. Now it's tempting to think of KD as the same as EC50 um, because we would say, oh, you know, if it has a smaller KD and it has greater affinity, then it's going to have a better EC50, a lower EC50, meaning that the effective concentration needed is going to be lower. But it doesn't necessarily translate directly because we also have to consider what we call intrinsic activity, which is everything that occurs downstream of the receptor, how it engages the signaling cascade, etc. EC50 takes all of that into account because it's measuring the effect grouped together. This is going to lead us to an important term, potency which is the amount of drug needed to produce a given response, and it's proportional to the KD, but it's not exactly the same. The more potent a drug, the less of it you need to reach the same maximal effect, which makes sense. We know this word potency in the vernacular, but this is how it's defined in this specific context. You also have to mention efficacy, and this is the ability of a drug to achieve the maximal effect. What do I mean by that? So we've discussed, we mentioned that drugs can be agonists or antagonists. That's a very black and white way of looking at an actually very grayscale picture. Looking at receptors as being on or off is really not actually accurate. Unfortunately, it's more complicated than that. So if we kind of picture the activity of a receptor as being on a scale of 0 to 1, with 0 being no activity and 1 being the highest measurable activity. So there are some ligands, which we call full agonists, that can reach that level of activity, that level 1, as their Emax. But there's also drugs called partial agonists, that even once they reach their Emax and more drug is not causing more response, they may never hit that full effect mark. This drug, therefore, has a lower efficacy than a drug with a greater Emax. Now recall we can also have antagonists. We were talking just before about agonists going from 0 to 1. We can also have antagonists, which come in two flavors, competitive and non-competitive. Competitive antagonists compete for the same binding site as another ligand, kind of like what they sound like, and they're going to shift the dose-response curve to the right, which is to say it's going to increase the EC50 without touching the Emax. We also call this surmountable inhibition because you can get to that same max effect. You just need more drug to get there and to overwhelm the competitive antagonist so that you have so much drug that even though the competitive antagonist is there, the drug is still going to bind. This is in contrast to non-competitive or non-surmountable inhibition, which binds to a different site and decreases the ability of the receptor to respond to the ligand. Maybe the ligand can still bind, maybe it can't. It's not really relevant. The point is that even if it does bind, the receptor can't respond properly to the ligand, and this cannot be overcome by flooding the receptor with more drugs, because remember, it doesn't matter if the ligand is bound or not. So that actually lowers the Emax and lowers the efficacy. Finally, we have another thing that's called an inverse agonist. Remember how I just said that the receptor ranges from 0 to 1? So I lied a little bit. It actually ranges from negative 1 to 1, because we can have an inverse agonist, which takes the receptor down past 0. Because at 0, there really is some basal activity using an inverse agonist can get the receptor all the way down to a level of complete inactivity. We'll talk about this a little bit more in the receptor talk, but just know that this is, it's a more complicated picture than we like to think about receptors being on or off engaged or not engaged. It doesn't really work that way. Okay, so just to close the loop, EC50 relates to potency, how much drug you need to get the effect, whereas Emax relates to efficacy, 
how much effect are you going to get when you have your maximum effect. So you can actually have a drug that's more potent, i.e. it takes less drug to reach its EC50, but less effective, the Emax is lower. Or you can have a drug that's less potent, it requires a higher dose, but once it gets there, wow, its Emax is really high, making it more effective. We, of course, prefer drugs to be maximally potent and effective in an ideal world, but of course, we don't live in an ideal world. Okay, that's graded dose response curves, and these are based on an individual. We're looking at the degree of an effect in, in an individual. But of course, we're not going to do a dose response curve for every patient. That would be ridiculous. So we use quantile curves, which kind of standardize these and gives us more of a population response. Quantile dose response curves get rid of this gray area of degree of response, and instead they just address whether or not there was a response i.e. there was a reduction in pain, or there wasn't. The fever went down, or it didn't. The infection was cleared, or it wasn't, etc. And of course, also, was there a side effect, or was there not? So with these quantile curves, we use slightly different language. We don't talk about an EC50, rather we discuss ED50, because we're not talking about the concentration at the receptor anymore, we're talking about the effective dose. So we call it ED50, which is the administered dose at which 50% of patients will respond. This is, of course, not necessarily going to be your recommended dose because you want more than 50% response, but that's what ED50 means. ET50 is the dose at which 50% of people will have a toxic effect, and obviously we want to be way below ET50. ET50 is not an acceptable number for us. That gets us to therapeutic index, which is the ratio of TD50 to ED50, and tells us about the safety of a drug. A larger therapeutic index means that the TD50 is higher, meaning you have to have a really high dose before you have 50% of people having a toxic response, which is good. So we want high or large therapeutic indexes. From there, we can develop a therapeutic range or therapeutic window, which is the dose range that lies between the minimum effective dose and the minimum toxic dose. I'll point out here, it obviously depends on what the toxicity is to determine whether or not some toxicity is acceptable. Some drugs where the toxicity is death, the therapeutic range has to be much narrower versus, let's say, drugs like Lipitor, which is a statin. There's a side effect of muscle aches, so we will accept some muscle aches to have more effective cholesterol lowering, but we are not going to accept certain side effects like death or paralysis or things like that. Okay, let's start with pharmacokinetics. And it's important to point out that this is the source of most inter-individual variation in drug response because this is the process of absorbing and metabolizing the drug, which determines how much usable drug is at the site of action. Pharmacodynamic variation, which is where the same amount of drug at the site causes different responses among people, is possible, but it's much less common. So when you say, I have a different response to this drug, really you don't. It means you metabolize the drug differently, so you end up with a different concentration at the receptor. But for the most part, once you have that same concentration at the receptor, the pharmacodynamics, what the drug does to the body, is going to be mostly similar across the board. We're going to talk about the PK profile, the pharmacokinetic profile of a drug, and that's really four things. It's the drug absorption, and the metabolism, the distribution, and the elimination and all of which are going to contribute to how much you have at the receptor, which is what then informs the dose you'll need to give in order to achieve an effective concentration. There's a lot here, but we're going to begin at the beginning, and we're going to continue on till the end. The first thing is drug absorption. Drug absorption becomes an issue because we like to give oral drugs. If we gave all drugs IV, we could have 100% absorption, pretty much. But the problem is that we favor compliance. Imagine if you had to get stuck with a needle every morning for your Lipitor or your Labetalol. Compliance would go through the floor. So especially for chronic conditions, it's really important that we have medications that, that can be given orally to encourage compliance. But with oral drugs, we can come across several issues that decrease the absorption and therefore the bioavailability. 
which is the extent to which the drug reaches the systemic circulation. We define bioavailability as the fraction absorbed compared to the IV route, which we consider that to be 100%. Factors that reduce bioavailability from oral drugs include that the drug may be unstable in the GI fluids, the GI contents may interfere with drug absorption, and this can be solved by taking drugs on an empty stomach. So that's why the instruction for certain drugs is to take them on an empty stomach, is to try to decrease this. Some drugs are charged and can't pass through the intestinal mucosa easily. We'll discuss this at the end briefly. And there's another thing we call first pass effect, which is that the drug gets heavily biotransformed as it passes through the GI tract in the liver, which may, if the drug is given in its active form and its metabolized form is inactive, you're going to lose a lot of drug in this first pass metabolism. Now to turn to metabolism. The reason we metabolize anything, be it endogenous or exogenous, is really for the purpose of excreting it. Although sometimes we get active metabolites as a byproduct, but really the reason the body wants to metabolize things is to excrete it. How do we excrete most of our stuff? How do we clean our blood? Is in the urine. So the goal is to make things more polar and water soluble so they can be excreted in the urine. To this end, we have phase one reactions, which happen mostly in the liver, and phase two reactions, which occur in the cytosol and microsomes. And these don't have to happen in that order necessarily. They're not always sequential phase one and then phase two. But that's kind of the way we think about them. Phase 1 reactions, also called functionalization reactions, occur, like I said, mostly in the liver and are carried out by enzymes called cytochromes, particularly a family of cytochromes called CYP450. And the fact that these same enzymes are used in the metabolism of many different drugs is a large cause of the drug-drug interactions that we see. What is the process of functionalization? This process creates slightly more polar metabolites via a lot of redox and hydroxylation reactions. And this may produce either active or inactive metabolites, depending on the substance. When a drug is undergoing phase one metabolism, there are kind of three things that can happen. We can go from an active drug to an inactive, we can go from active to active, and we can go from inactive to active. When we go from active to inactive, that's called an anti-drug. And the reason why we'd give this is because maybe we want just a local effect, like we want the drug to have an effect on the stomach. So we give it as an anti-drug, and then as soon as it gets metabolized in this first pass metabolism, it's inactive and it doesn't affect the rest of the body. If the drug goes from inactive to active, that's called a prodrug, and that can be useful because it only acts once it's metabolized. For example, aspirin gets metabolized to salicylic acid, which is where it's most active, and that means you're not losing in the process of metabolism, so you're kind of avoiding that first pass effect issue. And finally, we can have an active drug that has a change in the potency or efficacy or even the effect. Some drugs, like morphine, become much more potent once metabolized, and other drugs can actually be metabolized into something that has a completely different effect. Certain drugs that are CNS excitants when they're given, once they're metabolized, they become CNS depressants. So there's a lot of changes that happen in this first pass metabolism. Then, just briefly, the phase two reactions are called conjugation reactions. This is often glucuronidation, but basically it covalently adds hydrophilic groups for excretion, and these very polar drugs after phase two metabolism are pretty much always going to be inactive. Just another word about the CYPs, the cytochrome P450s. This is an important superfamily of enzymes to be aware of that do a lot of the phase one metabolism. It's a family of heme-containing enzymes that's highly conserved across species, which usually, by the way, is a clue that it's important. If you see the same enzyme across a lot of different species, it means it's something that we that couldn't be evolved out. Um, and while there's usually a primary CYP, like one family member that metabolizes a given drug, they're not perfectly specific. So lots of different SIPs can act on the same drug and you can produce alternate metabolites, uh, which can sometimes lead to toxicity. Let's talk drug-drug interactions that result from this. So first of all, if two drugs use the same SIP, 
Competitive inhibition means that each drug is being metabolized less, letting it stick around in the body more and potentially have too many effects or have toxicity depending on what the original drug was versus what the metabolite was. Alternatively, there's a phenomenon called induction, which is where giving a drug that uses a SIP actually causes an increase in SIP levels and can affect the metabolism of other drugs that use that same SIP, like in the case of alcohol and Tylenol. So alcohol upregulates SIP expression, and then if you take Tylenol, it gets metabolized faster, which can cause actually a buildup of toxic metabolites faster than the body can get rid of them. So it's not that the Tylenol is toxic, it's that the Tylenol is getting metabolized into toxic things too fast because the SIPs have been upregulated. All right, drug distribution and excretion is another important pharmacokinetic parameter because in order to have an effect, you need an effective systemic concentration. And this is really tied very tightly to excretion. We generally use compartment models to study pharmacokinetics, which use a KEL, a constant of elimination, to describe how drugs are clear from the bloodstream, assuming first-order kinetics. Again, I'm sorry to drag you back to Gen Chem, but this is pharmacology, so I, there's not much I can do about it. But first-order kinetics means that a fixed percentage of the drug concentration is cleared, not a fixed amount. So like if I have $100 in my bank account and I say every week I'm going to take out 10% of my money. So you know, I'm going to be taking out less and less every week, but still the same percentage. For first-order kinetics, T1 half, the half-life, which is the amount of time it takes to clear 50% of the drug, is a fixed number. It's 0 0.693 divided by the constant of elimination. This is in contrast to zero-order kinetics, where a fixed amount of drug is cleared per unit time regardless of the concentration in the blood. Like if I start out with $100 and I say every week I'm going to take out $10, so then it doesn't matter. After one week I have $90, after two weeks I have $80, I'm always taking out $10 regardless of how much I have in the bank. Now I want to talk to you about volume of distribution. This is a parameter that we use to convert from the dose of the drug given to the concentration in the blood. So it's a constant that is given, that's been experimentally derived for each kind of drug and has to do largely with how lipophilic the drug is. So volume of distribution is kind of a theoretical measurement of how much space would the drug take up? How much does the drug disperse? So the more lipophilic the drug, the larger the volume of distribution, because it's not likely to just be contained in the vascular system. It can get into the tissues. It can kind of go everywhere because remember, small lipophilic particles travel best. So an example of how we talk about volume of distribution is if you administer Tylenol and then you take a blood sample and you see you have eight milligrams per liter of Tylenol in your plasma, you don't multiply that just by how much plasma you have because the Tylenol has been distributed throughout the body. Tylenol has a volume of distribution of 50 liters. So you multiply it by 50 liters and you find out that the dose of Tylenol you currently have is 400 milligrams. That's how volume of distribution is used. And like I said, it's kind of a constant that's derived for each medication. You'd have to look it up. There's tables of volume of distribution. Now clearance is the volume cleared per unit time. So whereas the constant of elimination tells you the amount of drug that's cleared per unit time, clearance tells you how many milliliters of your plasma is being cleared of the drug per unit time. We can find clearance by multiplying constant of elimination, which is the volume of drug eliminated per time, by the volume of distribution, which is the total volume over which the drug is distributed, and we end up with total volume cleared per unit time. So clearance, which is denoted as, cap as capital C, capital L, CL, is equal to volume of distribution times constant of elimination. So now we want to talk about reaching steady state concentration in the plasma with an IV infusion, which is how we give most drugs that we're going to be concerned about. And here we have to consider zero order kinetics because IV infusions are always considered to be zero order, which again means that the rate is steady. 
So it is a fact that it takes five half-lives to reach steady state concentration, which is defined as the point where the output or the clearance is equal to the input. So faster infusion rate, what will happen if you increase the rate of infusion? You're going to get a longer half-life because it's going to be eliminated more slowly and will also give you a higher steady state concentration because it's not going to affect the number of half-lives to steady state. It's still going to take five half-lives. So it's going to take longer because you've just made the half-lives longer and the final steady state concentration will be higher. If you want to determine an infusion rate, how do, you, how do you decide what the infusion rate should be? Multiply the desired concentration by the clearance rate. From this equation, we can see that steady state concentration is directly proportional to infusion rate. If you double the infusion rate, you're going to double the steady state concentration. Now, what if you don't want to wait five half-lives? Because five half-lives may be a very long time. What you can do is you can give a loading dose which will let you skip the buildup to the point where you have steady state concentration and you kind of get directly there and then you continue to infuse to maintain it. A loading dose is going to be calculated as the desired steady state concentration times the volume of distribution. Again, we're converting a concentration to amount of drugs. So think about it like if you said, I want 10 balloons per room, that's your desired steady state concentration. You have to multiply that by how many rooms you have, which is your volume of distribution, to find out how many balloons you need, your loading dose. I don't know why balloons, just because. Now another pharmacokinetic principle to mention is this phenomenon called ion trapping, which we see in drug absorption and also in drug excretion. Essentially, in order to cross a plasma membrane, particles have to be small and uncharged. So in theory, acids and bases, drugs that are acidic or basic, will not be able to be absorbed well from the lumen of the GI tract into the blood or excreted from the blood into the urine because both of those involve crossing membranes. What happens though is that weak acids in the acidic environment of the stomach can't donate their H plus like they want because they're an overabundance of H plus and they're just a weak little acid, so they remain uncharged and they'll be driven to the blood, which is more basic and allows them to donate their proton like they want. Conversely, weak bases, which normally might not be able to pull a hydrogen because they're weak bases, can get trapped in the stomach because they can get charged there because there's so much H plus floating around. So basic drugs tend to get trapped in the stomach. Perhaps more importantly to note is that basic drugs will be driven from the slightly more basic blood to the more acidic urine where they have a better chance of getting a hydrogen. So that helps with elimination. So basic drugs are eliminated more effectively than acidic drugs. Acidic drugs are absorbed more effectively than basic drugs. This is so much so that drug users have been known to ingest salts that make the urine more basic, which favors the excretion of weak acids into the urine and retains weak bases like amphetamines in their blood for longer and makes the high last longer. This can also be used therapeutically if you're trying to clear someone of a drug and you know whether the drug is acidic or basic, you can give them something to acidify or make the urine more basic to try to excrete that drug more quickly. There is a mathematical way to figure this out where you use the pK of the drug to determine the percent ionized in the blood versus the stomach or blood versus the urine to determine which way the drug is expected to move or where it's going to get trapped. But honestly, I think it's easier to just logic this. Sometimes you will have to memorize equations. I really don't think this is one of those times. It's very logical. Acids want to be in a more basic environment where they can more easily give up their H+. Bases want to be in a more acidic environment where they can more easily obtain an H+. Boom. That's it. It's just acids are going to be driven from acidic to basic. Bases are going to be driven from basic to acidic. That's it. Most of the questions that will come up on exams, just logic it. Don't bother with the math. That's my advice. Okay, last thing we're going to talk about just a little bit is drug tolerance, drug dependence, and how they're different. So first to talk about tolerance. Tolerance is defined as a reduction in response to the same dose of drug after repeated exposure. The drug appears less potent and potentially even less effective. This can be pharmacokinetic or it can be pharmacodynamic. Pharmacokinetic tolerance is kind of like competitive inhibition and it can be overcome. 
It's usually due to a metabolic increase, meaning that the drug is getting cleared faster and you're not reaching the same steady state concentration. So you can actually just raise the dose and it will lead to the same response. So less potent, no efficacy change, the curve shifts to the right. That's pharmacokinetic tolerance. Pharmacodynamic tolerance is more like non-competitive inhibition and it can't be overwhelmed by sheer numbers. This happens when the receptors simply are not responding the same way anymore. One of the more famous types of receptors that undergo tolerance pretty quickly are the mu opioid receptors, which is a G-protein coupled receptor, and these are the receptors, like their name suggests, for opioids. Now, one mechanism of GPCR tolerance involves increasing the amount of time that the receptor needs to recover before it can be bound again. So everything in life has a refractory period. Once a ligand binds the receptor and the receptor does its thing, it takes a little bit of time until it's ready to take another ligand. So GPCRs in particular, sometimes as tolerance builds, take longer and longer to respond. So effectively, it's like there are fewer receptors because there are fewer available receptors at any given time. There's another important thing to note here, which is that Let's say in the opioid receptors, there are different pathways that can be activated by the same ligand, namely analgesia, pain relief, and CNS depression. Tolerance can actually occur at different rates in different pathways. So while the analgesia tolerance is pretty quick, the respiratory depression pathway actually does not get tolerant, which is the cause of many opioid deaths. Because you'll see when people start to have tolerance to the analgesia, they'll raise the dose, raise the dose, because it still hurts, it still hurts, it still hurts. But the problem is that the respiratory depression pathway is not tolerant. So you're having this CNS depression, people can just stop breathing, which is really the, the problem with opioids. Anyway, there are two different kinds of tolerance also, which are slightly different. There's homologous tolerance, which is where the activation of a receptor leads to tolerance developing at that receptor. That's kind of the type of tolerance that we normally would think about. But there is another phenomenon called heterologous desensitization, which is when the activation of receptor A actually leads to desensitization of receptor B due to shared downstream signaling or something like that. This is what's at play in what we call cross tolerance, which is a phenomenon where tolerance to one drug in a class leads to tolerance of other drugs in that class. This can be due to overlapping receptors or shared downstream pathways, but the tolerance is not going to be as extensive in the crossover drug, which is why, let's say, someone's taking an opioid. Opioids are just low-hanging fruit, sorry. Let's say someone's taking a certain opioid and they start to build tolerance rather than raising the dose, raising the dose, and risking that respiratory depression, it will help to switch to another opioid. There will still be some level of tolerance because of this cross-tolerance, but it'll be less than it was to the original opioid, and you can try to avoid killing patients, which is always a good thing. Last thing to say about tolerance is that by definition, tolerance is reversible. It just takes time. And this is the difference really between tolerance and dependence. Dependence is a certain type of plasticity where the body actually adapts to the presence of the drug and it needs the drug to function. Dependence is characterized by withdrawal and exaggerated rebound reactions when the drug is removed, like having a lower pain tolerance threshold with the opioid withdrawal. And it may actually be impossible to recover from dependence. Tolerance leads to dependence because it causes dose escalation, which facilitates drug-induced plasticity. So they're kind of on a continuum, but they're not exactly the same thing. Okay. Let's wrap this up. This was a lightning quick walkthrough of pharmacology basics. We defined pharmacokinetics, what your body does to the drug, and pharmacodynamics, how the drug affects the body. Then we started off with dose response curves, graded response curves for the individual, quantal curves that represent the effectiveness and safety in a population. We discussed potency, efficacy, therapeutic index. We moved on to touch on the four parts of PK profiles, absorption, metabolism, distribution, and clearance. We ended with some quick words about tolerance and dependence. Thank you so much for listening and sticking around till the end. If you enjoyed this, please rate the show and share it with your friends. It really helps me out. You can also contact me at medtogether26 at gmail.com with questions, concerns, comments, requests, just to say hi. I would love to hear from you and I will respond as promptly as I can. Catch you next time.